If you happen to be in need of a new t-shirt, hoodie, sticker, journal, or magnet, and want to help support this podcast, why not kill two birds with one stone and visit our official merch store? Check out the ever-growing selection of designs inspired by Japanese history at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com. Thank you for your support. Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 4, Episode 2, Nara Religion. By the beginning of what we now call the Nara period, Buddhism was no longer an insurgent foreign religion, but had been adopted widely by the Kuge of the imperial court and by many regional powers as well. The indigenous cult had not been exterminated or replaced, and in fact it is arguable that the ritualists who oversaw the administration of kami worship saw their power increase during the late Asuka period. The Nakatomi and Inbei clans in particular continued to hold high offices within the Jingi Khan, which is the department of kami worship. There's no evidence that the common people strongly held to either camp, but were probably happy to celebrate more festivals and gain an extra layer of spiritual protection against disasters. This brings us to one of the fundamental differences between the so-called Western cultures of Europe and those of East Asia. Religion in China, Korea, and Japan never really achieved the kind of power that accumulated within, say, the Roman Catholic Church. A big reason for this was that while Roman Catholicism managed to claim an effective monopoly on spirituality by demonizing the alternatives of paganism and magic, the various state polities of the East approached spirituality as something vast and indefinable, and thus they tended to hedge their bets by allowing many religions to operate simultaneously. This is not to say that there were never state proscriptions against certain sects or even entire religious bodies, but that when these reactions came, it was generally a result of politicking clergy rather than spiritual orthodoxy. Another factor in this tendency toward multiple, sometimes conflicting spiritual worldviews was the nature of Buddhism, which encouraged a certain level of diversity within its various schools. While many people today think of the Dalai Lama as a pope-like figure within Buddhism, this is quite inaccurate given the vast array of traditions, practices, and even mythology within the different groups today. And speaking of mythology, the Nara period saw the completion of many mythological works which recorded contemporary legends. I've already mentioned the Nihon Shoki, Kojiki, and Shoku Nihongi, but there was also the Fudoki, completed over the course of 20 years in 733. In addition to census-type information like the names and sizes of regions and towns, the Fudoki also compiled many folk tales, myths, and legends from all over the country. Thus, we can say that kami worship continued to thrive during this time, although certainly not to the same degree as Buddhism. 
This season's logo is a looming red pagoda as seen from the ground. I chose this image because it symbolizes the growth not only of the Buddhist religion as a whole, but the increase in its power and influence as well. A common refrain of the Nara period among historians is that the monks, priests, nuns, and abbots of the seven temples built in Heijo-kyo became overly entangled in politics to the detriment of both the imperial court and the development of Japanese Buddhism. This is an oversimplification, of course, but it is one that nonetheless paints a fairly accurate picture of the various shenanigans which we will be discussing this season. There were six major schools of Buddhism in Japan during the Nara period, some of which dated to the previous era, and others which were founded contemporarily. We'll start with the older schools and work our way toward the latter. The oldest of the six Nara schools traces its roots back to the influential Indian Buddhist philosophers Nagarjuna and Aryadeva. The school of thought they founded in India is referred to as Madhyamaka, and it continues to influence large segments of modern Buddhism, especially in Tibet. It originated as a form of Mahayana Buddhism that emphasized the importance of a middle way between stark asceticism and worldly hedonism. As it was introduced into China, and given the name Sanlun when it was introduced to Japan, it was transliterated as Sanron, meaning three treatises. Those three treatises consisted of two works attributed solely to Nagarjuna, namely the Middle Treatise and the Treatise on the Twelve Gates, as well as the Hundred-Verse Treatise, which is attributed to both Nagarjuna and Aryadeva. The Sanron school emphasized the importance of emptiness in seeking spiritual awakening and enlightenment. In fact, Aryadeva would be counted by later Zen Buddhists as one of their school's patriarchs for his emphasis on the need to empty oneself in order to attain Buddhahood. Sanron is believed to be the form of Buddhism which Crown Prince Shotoku followed, and thus it enjoyed a special claim to fame through its link with a famous patron. The ancient Shitennoji Temple served as the Sanron School's headquarters, which you may remember as being allegedly sponsored by Crown Prince Shotoku after the Soga clan's victory over the Mononobe in the late 500s. The Hosso School was a very meditation-based sect, which was also called Consciousness Only because of its focus on perception and cognition itself. Like Sanron, it sprouted from the Mahayana branch of Buddhism. Operating out of Kofukuji and Yakushiji Temple, both in Nara, this school frequently interacted with powerful political figures, and its tendency toward debate meant that many of the later schools which would eclipse Hosso were often founded by religious luminaries whose ideas were honed partly due to their arguments with the leadership of the Hosso school. The Kegon school came along later in the Nara period, 
and its founder originally trained in the Hoso school. There's a lot to be said about the political power wielded by the Kagon school, but we will get to that later in the season. For now, we will merely note that it was part of the Mahayana tradition, focused on the teachings of the Flower Garland Sutra, and was headquartered in the massive Todaiji Temple in Nara. The Ritsu school arrived in the mid-700s, originating from the Theravada sect, and being brought to Japan by a Chinese monk after five previous unsuccessful journeys across the Yellow Sea. We'll talk more about him later this season as well. The Ritsu school was a conservative division, which focused heavily on following the precepts laid down in the Vinaya canon. The Nara temples associated with Ritsu were Toshodaiji and Saidaiji. The next two schools are included in the Six Schools paradigm, even though neither was actually an independent movement in and of itself, but was more like an extension of two of the previous schools. The first was the Jojitsu school, whose adherents advocated for the elevation of the historical Buddha, and even went so far as to reject the Abhidharma, which is the third part of the Buddhist canon, or Tripitaka. They were inspired by Theravada Buddhism, but remained largely under the umbrella of the Mahayana school of San Ron. This brings us to the sixth and final school, Kusha. An academic subdivision of the Hoso sect, Kusha was Theravada in nature, just like Jojitsu, but rather than rejecting the Abhidharma, they wholeheartedly embraced it as part of canon and studied it extensively. We will talk a lot about Japanese Buddhism this season, as it's impossible to understand the Nara period without it. But we should also remember that the native cults of kami worship still existed and continued to develop during this time, both as a result of Buddhist encroachment and as a reaction against it. Since at least the reign of Emperor Temmu, imperial sponsorship of sun worship had been a mutually beneficial arrangement. The Issei shrine gained prestige among its peers, and the emperor enjoyed the greater legitimacy which came from the priests at the shrine attesting to his personal divinity. The sun goddess Amaterasu enjoyed an elevated position in regards to the other deities, in large part because of her association with the imperial family. The publication of the Kojiki and Nihon Shoki were huge developments for the indigenous religion, Indeed, it is difficult to overstate just how important the adoption of the Chinese writing system was for both the contemporary culture and later historians. Now that they could express themselves in a semi-permanent manner, the authors of folklore could collect these stories from the oral storytellers who preceded them and pass them on to future generations without having to go through all the trouble of memorization. While there are signs that supporters of the native kami worship worried that their traditions would be eclipsed by Buddhism, in reality the flexibility of Buddhism to shape itself around pre-existing ideas 
meant that both it and the contemporary religious establishment were enriched. That being said, there is evidence that the Nara period witnessed a reaction of Kami worshippers against overreach from the Buddhist establishment. And, as we will see, the imperial court itself would eventually grow suspicious of the intentions of the Buddhist clergy, who seemed to always find a way to include themselves in the various wranglings and controversies that erupted during the 700s. While there were certainly priests, monks, and nuns who cynically pursued promotions within the Buddhist establishment simply to acquire power and comfort— there were also those whose motives and work helped contribute to the greater good of both Japan itself and even of the common people whose welfare was so often overlooked by the court. In particular, one monk whose life work began in the Asuka period would spend much of the Nara period transforming life in the Kansai region. Born in the Otori district of Kawachi province, which is today called Sakai City in Osaka Prefecture, the man who would later be known as Gyoki may have descended from the Kawachi no Fumi clan, who were refugees from Baikje. Whatever his origins, Gyoki entered the priesthood when he was 15 at Asukadera Temple and gravitated toward the Hosso sect studying under Dōshō, a famous monk of the Asuka period who himself had studied and trained in China. Gyoki focused his efforts on meditation and acts of compassion. In 704, he returned to his home and established a temple there. There were generally two kinds of monks in this period, official and unofficial. The official monks were under the authority of the imperial court and were careful to observe strict rules regarding where they were allowed to practice and preach. Generally, this confined religious activities to temple grounds. Gyoki, however, became an unofficial monk and traveled throughout the Kansai, preaching Hosso principles of awakening, debating with monks from other sects, and doing good to the poor. Unlike the official monks who often pursued the patronage of powerful Kuge clans, Gyoki was only interested in helping commoners, both by leading them in Buddhist practice and by assisting them with their material needs. He gained many disciples through this direct practice, and they followed their master's lead by performing healing rituals for the sick and teaching commoners to memorize the Eightfold Path and learn its practices. Under his leadership, 49 monasteries and nunneries were built throughout the Kansai. These were not simply places of retreat for the pious, but served as community centers and hospitals, depending on local need. All of this unofficial building drew the attention of the imperial court, who were supremely unhappy with Gyoki's technically illegal activities. One of the imperial court's primary ways of expressing its power was through massive community building projects, and thus anyone embarking on a large building project of their own risked the government's wrath. However, while Gyoki was imprisoned for a short time, 
he was quickly released due to popular demand. The court embraced his efforts, regardless of their illegality, and would periodically grant him important positions when they needed to lean on his rather immaculate reputation in order to prop up their own. Because of his efforts at supplying many communities with versatile temple buildings, he is generally considered to be Japan's first civil engineer. There is a type of map which is named for him, and many legends surrounding his ability to create very useful maps, but there is no contemporary evidence that he ever actually engaged in cartography. Perhaps a future discovery awaits us which will prove the legends true, though I will personally remain skeptical until such a discovery occurs. Hopefully you'll recall the two most prominent clans whose legacies were intrinsically linked with the indigenous cult of kami worship, the Nakatomi and Inbei clans. The Nakatomi were generally entrusted with the methods and apparatuses of ritual practice, while the Inbei held authority over the purification aspects of community religion, especially providing abstainers to places seeking ritual cleansing. Hopefully you'll also recall that Nakatomi Kamako was given a new family name of Fujiwara as a special honor from King Tenji, and that his children carried on that name. There was some confusion at first over who was allowed to call themselves Fujiwara, a name that evokes purple wisteria flowers, but during the reign of Emperor Momu, it was decreed that only the descendants of Kamako's second son, Fujiwara Fuhito, could claim that honor and that the others would remain Nakatomi. While you may wonder whether this separation led to resentment among the Nakatomi, all the evidence suggests that it likely wasn't a long-term issue. Fujito continued securing valuable appointments for his cousins, doing what he could to insulate them against the cultural changes which were sweeping the nation. The imperial court did not have an endless supply of wealth and resources, and government departments who were underutilized could find their jobs, ranks, and positions in danger, especially those courtiers whose families had performed services in the past which had now been taken over by the growing Buddhist establishment. As natural disasters in Japan still sometimes prove catastrophic today, it isn't hard to imagine how much worse the effects of a large earthquake, sudden tsunami, or massive typhoon would have been in the 700s and before. In pre-Nara Japan, these disasters were generally attributed to angry kami, who could be assuaged by purification rituals and a recommitment of the local people to honor the spirit whose land they inhabited. With the arrival of Buddhism and its cultural entourage, however, ideas had begun to evolve regarding both the cause of disasters and the spiritual solutions. We'll start with the solutions, as those were the first to emerge as religious innovations, and some were even adopted in the Asuka period. Chanting the sutras became a popular way that Buddhist priests could assuage any angry kami. Chanting or memorizing the sutras were both activities which were believed to grant its practitioner magical powers, as well as the power to put nature back in proper balance. 
As to the belief that the kami were causing disasters, this would also be transformed by Nara innovation. We will discuss the details of that change in a later episode during the narrative history. Sorry to be mysterious, but I just don't want to spoil the surprise. While chanting the sutras early on was considered an effective safeguard against present disasters, eventually this would evolve into transcribing the sutras. The act of copying the scriptures by hand using the Chinese script for now was considered a very holy and purifying endeavor. It should come as no surprise that the sutras themselves were believed to contain a magical quality which could be called upon for both spiritual enrichment as well as the edification of state power. The hand-copying of the various sutras carried the benefit of greater availability of the religious texts for the pious or curious aristocracy. Indeed, reading and writing increased throughout the Nara period, and the thirst for Chinese philosophy, history, and literature among Japan's elite was still at a fever pitch. These works were augmented by the Nihon Shoki and Kojiki, as well as the Fudoki. The Japanese compilers who committed their island's mythology, folk tales, and lore to the permanent record with brush and ink deserve a massive amount of credit for their work. The stories found within the Nihon Shoki and Kojiki would probably have been lost to the sands of time without this effort by the imperial court to establish a national identity for the islands of Japan, which was distinct and intrinsically independent of Korea or China. Next time, we'll begin the narrative history, picking up where we left off in Season 3 with Empress Gemmei and her big move to Heijou-kyo. 